We have, uh, to, we have today, and next week we will be wrapping up our study on apologetics, and uh, I will give you uh, some instructions at the end of this, if I remember to do that, uh, about the very uh, next week about how we will end apologetics uh, study, and it will involve you bringing questions and things like that. Uh, the whole thing won't be just answering questions, but I want you to have a way to ask questions, even anonymously is fine, um, and things that, uh, where you have an opportunity to ask anything you want. Uh, a question that you've always wished someone would answer for you, um, and I can't promise that I'd give you like the best answer in the universe, but uh, it'd be something, instead of nothing, so... Uh, so we'll, uh, we'll talk more about that at the end. All right, does everyone have a piece, uh, half sheet of paper if you want it? Zeke uh, graciously handed those out for me, appreciate that. All right, good. Well, today we're going to talk about something that um, I think is on the minds of those that are uh, studying apologetics and people that are uh, trying to understand it, and that is the idea of certainty. What does it mean to be certain of something, and how is it possible to be certain of something? Because I think in the end, that's what we're struggling with when it comes to apologetics, whether we're doing apologetics for uh, unbelievers or we're doing apologetics for ourselves. The big question is, how can I be certain? And that's the question we want to answer today. Hopefully, we'll see how it goes. All right, let's have a word of prayer and we'll get going. Dear Heavenly Father, we are uh, grateful to you this morning that we get to think on your word. That we get to think on uh, the instruction you have given us. That you've even uh, allowed us to think in ways uh, beyond our culture beyond what we uh, are used to, uh, and Lord, you often take us through the work of the Holy Spirit even beyond um, what we thought possible, where you are able to give us comfort at times we thought we would uh, not be able to have comfort, and give us certainty at times that we thought we would never be certain. Lord, we pray for this kind of work of your Holy Spirit uh, through the uh, study of your word. And we ask that uh, in your son's name. Amen. Okay. Well, uh, the, the question before us today, as you see on your paper there, is how can I be certain? Uh, just as we begin, what does it mean to be certain, to, to have certainty? Well, let's start it uh, even easier than that. What are some things you are certain about? Like you know for sure. This doesn't even have to be spiritual. Just something you know you're, if, if nothing else, you know this is true, no matter what. The earth is flat. Very good. Finally, someone. <laughs> yes. Even though 
know that two plus two is four and all of this would suck. And the last thing you teach kids is discouragement. <laughs> Okay, yes. Well, I think you're thinking of David Hume. Yes. Who uh, Kant tried to, uh, tried to answer that, but uh, he didn't do such a good job. But good. So, so uh, what Bob is talking about is he's certain that 2 plus 2 equals 4. However, there was a guy a long time ago. He was a, a kind of grumpy guy named David Hume. And he uh, came up with this idea of, well, we're kind of assuming these things onto the world. These, this is just a human perspective. How could you be sure of such a thing? In fact, he's the guy that came up with the idea that we really can't be sure of cause and effect. How can you be sure of cause and effect? Well, let me... Now, that sounds kind of crazy. And I know this is starting to sound like philosophical mumbo-jumbo. But uh, let me give you an example. If I were to hold a picture, uh, picture up of uh, the Michigan logo, Michigan uh, University of Michigan, Wolverines, football. Remember when people used to do that stuff before COVID? Uh, so if I were to hold up the Michigan logo, and then in the other hand, I had the Ohio State logo. All right? And I said, now, which of these are better? This one... Michigan, or this one, Ohio State. I said, now, the only people we're going to poll to see which of these are better are people living in Michigan between the ages of 15 and 35, uh, pretty much just males. Would that be a fair poll? Okay, you would need someone from the outside to say, well, you know, let's have some objectivity here. Well, this is what Hume was getting at. Hume didn't believe there was anything outside of humans. He didn't believe in God or anything like that. There were just humans. And all these humans are saying, oh yeah, there's cause and effect. And Hume's saying, well, do we have anyone outside of humanity that could tell us something else? How can you know there's cause and effect? Maybe that's just all human brains are assuming that onto the world. And the world doesn't work that way at all. We just are thinking that way because we're humans. Is there anyone that's not human that could help us know whether this is really the way the world is. And no one volunteered in, uh, in uh, David's view anyway. And so certainty, right? So David Hume even came up with a way where we can no longer even be certain of cause and effect. It's very sad. Now, uh, now many of you might be certain that your car is still outside. And uh, because our church is not in Detroit, Michigan, uh, that's a pretty safe assumption. <laughs> um, no offense to anyone listening from uh, Detroit. Okay. Um, so there are certain things that uh, we've come up with, at least the world of philosophy has come up with, certain, and this is on your uh, paper, Typical aspects of certainty, typical things that we expect certainty to contain, okay? Number one, we expect it to make logical sense, okay? 
If we're going to be certain about something, it has to be in some way logical to us. Uh, you drove here, you remember parking the car, you remember walking away from the car, and logically you understand that uh, something that heavy most likely won't roll away. You put the emergency brake on. These are all logical things, so you know it's still going to be there in the same general spot that you remember it being in. It's logical, okay? Uh, number two, credible proof. Credible proof. Um, unlike the Jehovah Witnesses, we have windows in our sanctuary. Uh, I don't want to go into why they don't have windows, but uh, their religion is strange enough as it is. Uh, so, we have windows, so if you want some credible proof that your car is still out there, you can look out the back and go, yep, still there, got some proof. You, you have trusted the photons that have reflected off of the car into your eyeball, creating an image of your car, and now you are convinced, right? Okay. So it has to make logical sense. You need credible proof. And number three, and this is one of the most important ones, you wouldn't think it is, but it really is, emotional satisfaction. Emotional satisfaction. When you say, I am certain of something, it is not unusual for someone to say, I feel certain of something. Because along with this logical understanding of what's going on and the credible proof you have of it, you also need this emotional state uh, that helps you feel like everything is okay. Does that make sense? So not only is, does it make logical sense that your car is still out in the parking lot and that you looked out the back window and saw it to make sure, but that feeling you get that, ah, yeah, that's, it is out there, is part of that emotional satisfaction of certainty. Um, you know something is wrong with your brain if you have to keep looking out there. Right? Uh, we call this obsessive-compulsive disorder, in which case someone needs that uh, credible proof over and over and over again, right? Are my hands clean? I think they're, well, let me wash them one more time, right? So, uh, so in psychology class, you might learn that it's okay to wash your hands, uh, but as the numbers start spiking during the day, maybe you're obsessed with it, right? So if you wash your hands three or four times a day, five or six times a day, maybe that's all right. But when you're reaching about 20, you're weird. Okay, you're weird. Or uh, you're, you have a strong feeling about COVID. One or two. <laughs> okay. <sighs> You'll see. In a, few, in a few years, that will be a funny joke. You'll see. All right. <laughs> okay. So, our three aspects of certainty, logical sense, credible proof, emotional satisfaction. Um, what I've done is I've made a little bracket there, and uh, you'll see on your handout uh, that I want to demonstrate something today, and that is we often desire, that's what the little blank is for, we often desire to make these aspects here the criteria for belief. Uh, even though these are fine uh, when it comes to uh, thinking about whether your car is in the parking lot or not, sometimes we want these aspects to be the criteria for whether or not I believe there's a God, whether or not 
I believe the Bible is true. And we almost expect this should be part of our apologetics, to get the person we are talking to to see that we, what we are saying makes logical sense, we have credible proof, and we can offer emotional satisfaction. In fact, for many of us, part of the problem to why we start having doubts about Christianity, doubts about whether there's a God, doubts about uh, the Bible, and all those sort of things, is because we bring with us this criteria of whether the Bible is making logical sense to us. I have to put that little uh, preposition at the end there. Uh, many of us know very little about logic, but when we think something doesn't make logical sense, we become logical experts, right? <laughs> We've never taken a class in logic. We're pretty sure there are classes available, we just haven't taken them. But when we see something in the Bible doesn't make sense, well, oh, that doesn't make logical sense. Uh-oh, now we have degrees in logic, right? Um, credible proof, right? We think, well, the Bible, I am sure, you know, I grew up in Sunday school believing the Bible is true, but I need some credible proof. Uh, can Josh McDowell help me uh, find some credible proof so I can really believe this Bible? Because when it comes right down to it, we're beginning to lose our emotional satisfaction, right? And as our emotional satisfaction starts to waver, we start looking, well, is there credible proof? Can science help me believe my Bible? Can uh, is there something logical that will help me? And, and I know this sounds over, overly, um, overly simplistic, but I can tell you that in the world of apologetics, that's basically what you have. Um, unless you're you know, reading Frame or Van Til or one of those guys, they seem to still think the Bible's powerful. But uh, other guys, not so much. And I, and I, and I know that's probably... Um, probably mean, but, you know, it just seems, you know, um, there's a guy named Alvin Plantinga, and he has been very helpful. I don't want to take away what he has done, but his main thesis is that Christianity, whether it's true or false, is reasonable. And therefore, he's kind of giving an appeal to the secular world that it doesn't matter whether it's true or false, what we're believing is reasonable, and therefore you should respect what we believe. And, you know, I think that's, that's okay. I mean, it lasted for a few years where the secular institutions go, maybe we should think about this. And then they decided, nah, <laughs> no, Christianity is still evil, it's terrible. And of course they will, because that's not what the problem is. The problem isn't that they thought, oh, Christianity is so unreasonable. <gasps> Thank you, Alvin Plantinga. Now that we see it's reasonable, let's accept it. <laughs> we'll start teaching Christianity. No, it doesn't work that way. That's not what the problem was. And um, so we have people that have dedicated themselves to making sure Christianity makes logical sense, right? You have the McDowells, both Sean, uh, the kid, and Josh, the dad, who have said, no, it's credible. We can find all this credible proof. Just put this proof together. And it gets even to people that are actually uh, scholastic, or uh, if I can put it this way, academic, like uh, Richard Swinburne, who actually is an academic out there, and that's what he believes. We have enough proof. It's credible. Uh, and he writes all these books about it, tours, talks about it, because people are worried about this logical idea, the credible idea, so that we can have 
our emotional satisfaction. So if this is what certainty is, right? Um, I think this is what we tend to bring with us that we expect out of Scripture or out of believing in God, that we say these things that philosophy has taught us that you know, it needs to make logical sense to me, and I need to see the credible proof for me so that I can have this emotional satisfaction for me about the Bible and God. And if I don't have these things, then I can't be certain. So I want to, uh, if you would, turn to Hebrews 11. What's great about Scripture, uh, in particular in Paul's writing, and I know no one knows who wrote Hebrews, and a lot of people don't think it's Paul, they think it's somebody else, whoever wrote it. Uh, but Paul, uh, if you read in Paul's writings, uh, especially in Romans, Paul answers all these really difficult questions. He just doesn't answer them in a way that gives us our emotional satisfaction, right? I mean, in Romans 9, he says, How is it possible that God can hold us responsible for whether or not we believe when he is the one that causes someone to believe? And he gives an answer. We just don't like it. The answer is, who are you to speak back to God? And the answer is, Because God is the author of reality, and you are one that has the privilege of participating in it. That's the answer. God made it this way. It's not that there's another reality in which there's another way things could be. It's that the only reality that exists is the one God spoke into existence, and he's the creator and you're the thing created. That's the answer. It does not give the emotional satisfaction a lot of people would like, but it's the answer. Here in Hebrews, whoever wrote it, uh, in Romans, uh, Hebrews 11, gives us the same thing. How are we to be certain of anything? Where's our proof? Where's, if I could put it this way, the substance or certainty Uh, that there is a God, or that the Bible is true, and all that sort of thing. Hebrews gives us the answer. Isn't this great? Boy, if you only knew, all all your problems would be solved today. Okay. Hebrews 11. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now, what's great about these words is that people have uh, translated them in all kinds of ways. So, uh, now faith is the, King James says, substance. I believe ESV or somebody, maybe it's NIV. Anyway, somebody calls it certainty, the certainty of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. Um, In some translations, it says proof. The proof. Of things not seen. And the Greek uh, supports all those translations. So they're all good. Um, and so, what is it that is your proof or the, uh, the thing that gives you certainty, according to Hebrews 11? What gives you the certainty? What provides you with the proof? What is it? Faith. Yeah, faith is the proof. 
Well, isn't that great news? You guys don't look like it. <laughs> You're looking like that's not great news. Okay, well, let's, let's look at our little blanks. Maybe our blanks will help us. Okay, faith is the certainty. You can put certainty in there. You can put substance in there. Whatever, uh, whatever translation uh, uses the word you like. Assurance is good. And proof. That's the one I like. I like that one because everyone's asking for proof these days. And we have it. Proof. So faith is the certainty and proof of what would otherwise be uncertain. Right? Things you cannot see. Right? The things that you are hoping for. Right? If you are a Christian, what are you hoping for? What's in, what's in view here for those things? What, what's, what's the hope? What was that? Okay, eternity where? Yes, eternity with Christ and uh, in heaven and the new earth, right? Which will be a city. Isn't that interesting? Uh, the new earth will not be... Uh, a bunch of farmland, living on farms isolated from each other, raising cows, uh, as delicious as they are. But it's going to be a city where everyone's grouped together. There's going to be work to do. There's going to be a lot to do, right? It's not just you're, you're uh, in, in a choir room waiting to, to go sing. I'm sure there might be people doing that. But, I'm, but there's going to be stuff you got to do. You need expertise in things to make a city run. And not just that, but there's going to be theological things that you're going to need to know because you might be in charge of that sort of thing. You have eternity to learn new things about God. He's going to keep using us for stuff. It's going to be exciting. These are things I hope for, right? Um, another thing we hope for is that God is everything he said he is in Scripture. Because if he's not, we're in big trouble, right? <laughs> um, we have come to believe that the word hope is uh, Disney hope, right? When we hear the word hope, we're thinking Disney. We're thinking, uh, I have a dream. And uh, one day my dream will come true. And through a bunch of bumbling people and crazy situations... Uh, just so happens that our dream comes through, maybe through our own strength, whatever it is, and that's a Disney hope. This is not talking about Disney hope. This is talking about a hope that is within you. In fact, it's a hope that has been placed within you. Right? This hope isn't something you all, you know, you just kind of want. It's a hope that's been placed in you. And this hope is placed in you because. Your father is excited about you being able to see it come to fruition, see it consummated. Uh, there is something exciting about a dad, uh, or exciting within a dad, when he sees his kids excited about something that he knows he can supply. Right? When you have bought the tickets... To get into Disney World, and I know Disney World's evil and terrible, but man, it's amazing. Uh, and you have the tickets for Disney World. You already have, you know, you have the caravan ready to go. Everything's packed. The kids are super excited. 
and you have everything planned, you've paid for almost all of it, because now Disney has that thing where you get the food passes, and you just walk in and eat whatever you want. It's just amazing. All right, but I know they're terrible. But here's my point. <laughs> you have it all planned out. The kids are super excited, and you have the hotel, and maybe you have one of those hotels that are right in the park itself or something like that. Maybe you, you won the lottery or something. Whatever it is. You shouldn't be playing the lottery. Here's my point. <laughs> that you have already have it laid out. You have gone and pre-prepared everything. They're super excited. That is still a hope within them. And you, is, you have provided transportation. You have provided housing. You have provided the food. You have provided way into the park. You have provided all of this for them. They're excited and you're excited because you know they're going to their, their little faces when they walk into the Epcot Center or the Magic Kingdom, you know. And it doesn't even matter if they're 20 years old, they're still going to love it. Am I right? That's right. So, your father has that for you. He placed that hope in you because he is, he is as eager as you are to see your little faces when you walk into his prepared mansions. So this faith is part of what makes that all, uh, that is the, the, um, the certainty and the proof, right? What kind of certainty or proof would you like besides faith? I mean, isn't it true we would like something else? As, as post-enlightenment beings, right? who are on this side of history, um, when we see faith, we're disappointed, right? What we'd like to see is um, the visual representation that will be coming down to you on April 20th of 2021 is the proof. And on uh, April 20th, there's this big manifestation is going to happen, and everyone's going to see it, and that will be the proof that all this is really real. Isn't that what we'd rather have? Well, faith is fine. Yeah, we hear about faith. We kind of sounds a little wishy-washy. But if God came down and said, hey, everybody, I'm really here. This is the stuff I'm going to show you that you're going to get. You'd be like, that's the kind of proof you want, right? You want something you can see, right? Something you can feel. Something that our philosophers have taught us we're supposed to want, right? It needs to be logical. God has to explain it in a logical way for us needs to be credible so we can see the proof right before our eyes, then I'll feel better about the whole thing. But instead, what he gives us is faith. And what we see, make sure I'm, okay. What we see is that faith is not, and this is your next uh, blank, faith is not stagnant. Faith is not stagnant. We see in Ephesians 2, verse 8, that faith is a gift. And I know a lot of people have tried to mess with the, with the Greek on this to try and make it sound like it's saying something else, uh, that we can conjure faith within ourselves or something like that. Um, but no, faith really is a gift. You can't make yourself have faith. It has to be given to you by the Holy Spirit. 
So it is given to us, but it doesn't mean that that's where that it's given to us in in its full strength and its full capacity. Okay. So if I were to really make my son happy, I would get him a. Let me see if I can get this right. A 2022 uh, GT Mustang. Eight-cylinder, of course, with a turbo. How does that sound? Basically giving you... <laughs> and, and a death certificate to go along with it, since that thing goes so fast it will most likely kill whatever's inside. Okay. But that's what I would, you know, if I gave him that, right, I would hand that over to my son and say, here, son, here is your Mustang, brand new, uh, red with black stripes, all that sort of thing. But as I give it to him, he hasn't driven it to its full capacity yet, right? Uh, that thing can hit, how, how fast can something like that go? 400 horsepower. Okay, so you're looking at something that's, that's pretty, but it's pretty fast, pretty powerful. Probably pull a, uh, a fifth wheel on that thing if you wanted to. So, I don't know why you would want to do that, but you could. Uh, so, um, it has a lot of potential, right? And faith, as it, is, as it is given to us as a gift, has high potential. But there are things that God does in order to get it to that potential, Right? And according to James 1, 2 through 4, a lot of times our faith is strengthened through trials. Well, that doesn't sound like fun, right? It's also strengthened through communion. And communion is a way of strengthening our faith. So we can have faith that's weak, but it's there. We can have strength that is strong. So there's dynamics to faith. So what happens, uh, Daniel, what would happen if you got that car, that 2022 GT Mustang with the stuff on it, and you just let it sit there uh, for about three years? But if you did, let's say you just never started. You left it outside uh, in the grass and just left it there for three years. Never turned it on. Okay, the oil would get old. The gas would get old. I have to repeat it for the... And the <laughs> brake lines would start deteriorating. Get some rats in there. Um, okay, so is it possible that you're given this beautiful gift of faith and you kind of expected faith to drive itself, to do nothing with it, you just had it, you kind of looked at it, it's shiny and pretty, and you just left it there, and you did nothing to strengthen your faith, you did nothing to work on your faith. And then you're shocked that you're having doubts. You're shocked that your certainty is low. 
right? So the certainty increases as faith increases due to daily, and this is the word I want you to start thinking about, your next blank there, the certainty increases as faith increases due to daily habits. And we see habits being um, explained in Hebrews 8 through 19 as we talk about, as it talks about Abraham. So Abraham, looking at verse 8, when he was called, obeyed going out to a place which he was to receive, receive for an inheritance. Okay? Now when you think of Abraham, what's the big, what's the big work of faith Abraham did? that everyone thinks of when we think of faith in Abraham. What was that? Okay, so he, uh, he takes Isaac, binds him, puts him on the altar, and he's going to kill him. That's the big thing, right? But it doesn't talk about that first, does it? Abraham was told to move. And he did. Yeah, he was told, hey, you need to move. You need to pack up all your stuff. I need to go over here. It doesn't look great now, but this is where you're supposed to go. And he goes, okay. Now that's not as big as like binding your own son, putting him on an altar, grabbing a knife, and getting ready to plunge it into his heart or cutting his throat or whatever it is you were going to do, right? Being asked to move doesn't seem that big. <laughs> so we first see his act of faith in something, you know, relatively... I know moving is hard. Trust me, I get it. I've done it. How many times have we done it, son? Eight? Something like that. It's, it's not fun. It's, it's kind of terrible. It's not so bad when you get to leave to, you know, like Toledo, Ohio. You're like, well, at least I'm leaving Toledo, Ohio. That's not so bad. But when you have to keep moving after that, you're like, okay, this is getting old. I'm starting to move from cool places. That's not so great. Okay. So he was asked to move. All right, and then we see, by faith, he lived as an alien uh, in the land of promise, uh, as in a foreign land, dwelling in the tents of Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. So part of his faith was also remaining in this place he was asked to move. There was a daily walking, a daily faith of being a, for a foreigner in a new place, okay? For he was looking for a city uh, which has foundations whose architect and builder is God. So he was looking some, something further, right? This is something that's harder for um, uh, other people in other denominations to understand. We as the Reformed are, uh, understand this quite, quite simply, that Abraham was not simply looking at physical land, but he was looking at the land that this would one day become when God creates a new heaven, new earth, things like that. And so we were taken step by step as, he, as it talks about his faith. And then finally, as we get down into verses 18 and 19, we finally get to the whole Isaac deal. Okay? That's when we get into the big acts of faith. Okay? So what we learn from this is, your next blank there is, small habits lead to more significant acts of faithfulness. Small habits 
lead to more significant faith, uh, acts of faithfulness. And I don't know if this is part of our culture. Uh, maybe it's part of our immaturity. But when we think of faith, we're already jumping to those big acts of faith. Being able to have faith on my deathbed. Being able to have faith in the, in the midst of something that seems illogical and where I don't have any proof around me and I still have to have this faith and move forward in these big acts of faith. Um, and we expect those things without any small acts, no, no small habits of faithfulness. So we have no small daily acts of faithfulness and then when a big act of faith is needed, maybe a friend of yours leaves the faith. Maybe for you younger people, this happens more with younger people, where someone you knew that seemed like a good Christian walks away from the faith. They might, um, we knew someone who just ran away from home. She was a teenager, ran away from home, ran to California to live with her boyfriend and broke the hearts of, their par- of her parents. She just couldn't stand Christianity anymore, all that foolishness. And because, you know, she was a whole, what, 17, 18 years old. Of course, she understood the world at that time. Um, and so she was convinced everyone's an idiot but her, and so she runs off to prove uh, how smart she is. And you see this, and this really shakes the faith of the young people that, she's in contact with, right? She starts coming up with all these questions that seem intelligent at the moment because when a peer has these questions, you're not sure how to answer them, so then they start affecting you, right, as a teenager because you never thought of this and, you know, adults, you haven't gone to an adult and asked anybody, and so they really seem like difficult questions. You're like, well, maybe they're right. I mean, look at them. They just walked away from it and they seem happy and and they come up with these questions, I don't know, how am I supposed to answer this? And they, you know, they poison everything around them, even though the cure is really easy to get to. Uh, believe it or not, teenagers haven't come up with questions that tw- 2,000 years of Christianity hasn't dealt with already. I know it's hard to believe. It's a, it's a difficult thing, but no, uh, they've, they've talked about it and there's answers you just have to ask. But here's my point. My point is, we, you know, at those moments, those big, you, know, you, have a, you need a big act of faith there because those questions really are affecting you. That person really has affected you, and it really does bother you, and you now need a big act of faith to push forward, and you're surprised at how much uncertainty you have. Well, the question is, what small acts of faithfulness have you been doing? Would Hebrews 11 be able to say, uh, you know, every day this young man, uh, by faith, uh, opened his Bible? By faith, spent 15 full minutes just in prayer to his God. Would Hebrews 11 be able to say that of you before it got into the big stuff? It was a good question for us adults, right? Uh, it gets harder when you're an adult because the unfairness seems to be bigger. People die that you think, why did God take this person 
and the useless people that are still around are quite healthy, right? Why is it that God took this away? Why is God allowing my marriage to tear in half? Why do we have all these problems? Why is God allowing this? And these big acts of faith are now needed, and you've had no small acts of faithfulness, right? No habits of your life that have prepared you for the big acts that are needed. John Owen put it this way, the root of faith taken spiritually is the habit of it in the heart, a spiritual living habit, where the heart is habitually working on faith. And this is done by feeding your heart, right? How do we feed our heart? We feed our heart through what God says in his word. We feed our heart by speaking to our God, repenting to him, and even begging to your father. Who did all this for all this redemption, right? The redemption of your soul, the redemption of this world that he's going to redeem the earth, right? For us. All comes down to John 3:16. For God so loved. The Father loved. The Son was sent and the Holy Spirit comforts. All that because we have no answer for this one, God created. We don't know why that happened. There was nothing missing. But he added. So we look at a little question here. How are we able to be certain of God? Right? Because that's where the doubts start. That's where all the work begins. How are we to be certain of God? We are able to be certain of God because our faith is not composed of the physical bonds of this world. Our faith, um, is our faith logical? Yeah. As far as the model that we have for logic can stretch, it can't stretch as far as faith, but it can stretch far enough uh, for us to understand it. Is faith credible? Absolutely it's credible because it comes from the author of reality. Does it give emotional satisfaction? Sure. When you have the habit of faithfulness, right? When you do the work of being habitually faithful to your God. But it's not reliant on the things we want Right? We want it to be this logical thing where logic rules over our faith, where the proof that we want rules over our faith, which is physical proof, which is what we really want. And the emotional satisfaction really is a selfish satisfaction that will make me feel better, not make me better, more spiritual. So it doesn't rely on that. But rather, our faith is authored and strengthened by God, Allowing small faithful habits to lead to great acts of faith. You will need great acts of faith. 
in your life. No matter how, uh, for you younger people, no matter how much uh, difficulty you think you've gone through so far, it gets worse. It gets harder. It gets less fair, if I can put it that way. And you will need great acts of faith. The question is, what have you done with this beautiful gift God has given you already with your faith? Have you been faithful in the small things so that when the big things come, you have faith, you have your certainty? Your certainty will begin in the morning when you start planning when you're going to speak to your God and hear from him in his word. And when that becomes habitual for you, your reactions to what comes to you in the world becomes habitual as well. You become habitually faithful. And when the big need for faith comes, it will be there and you will be certain. And people will be, how could they be so certain at a, such a hard time? And it comes from those small acts that begin it. All right. We are out of time. Let's have a word of prayer. and Then we will be dismissed. Dear Heavenly Father, we, um, we come before you asking for your gracious help to us, that your Holy Spirit would work in our hearts, that we might be habitually faithful every morning in the small things, that you might, as you bring uh, difficulties into our lives to strengthen our faith, that our faith might actually be strengthened because you have helped us be faithful in what is small. Lord, we pray for that work uh, even today as uh, we are led in worship um, and as Andrew comes and speaks your word to us that we might bow our heads before it and our hearts before it, that the Holy Spirit might work in our heart, breaking it so that we might be uh, habitually faithful to you, Lord. We ask these things in your Son's name. Amen.